Sometimes I feel like I have two wars, two battles going on in my life, two opposing forces. So in my instance, it's like I've got Good Dale versus Naughty Dale. And I prefer to use Naughty Dale versus Evil Dale, but Evil Dale is probably closer to the truth. And maybe you have that sense in your own life as well. I would like to be able to say that that doesn't exist in me. I would like to pretend it doesn't exist in me, and sometimes I do. But the truth is, I know that evil power at work. I know that in me is a dark side, or maybe I should call it a green side. Our friends at United Health said we could share this little green side commercial with you. Watch this. Hi, Mr. Powers. Thanks for calling United Healthcare. Hi. I need your help. I've been trying to find a knee specialist, but nobody has an opening for months. Mr. Powers? You can't always control your feelings. Oh, I found one in that work next Tuesday. But choosing United Healthcare can help you control your care. Thanks, Stephanie. I see on our preventive checklist you're due for a colonoscopy. It's covered at no additional cost to you. Great. No green. United Healthcare. All right, so all of us have a green side in our lives, and that's what we're going to talk about the next couple of weekends. We're going to talk about those desires in us and what we do to achieve them or what we do to prevent certain things in our lives. And in order to do that, I need to let you know that, first of all, it's not wrong to have desires. Now, there are good desires and there are bad desires, it's not wrong to have good desires unless, and we'll look at the unless in just a moment, but I don't want you walking out here thinking that I'm like against desires. For instance, you know, a good desire might be that next year the Minnesota Vikings are in the Super Bowl and they win it, right? Yeah. A bad desire, an evil desire might be that the Packers are in the Super Bowl and they win it. So you get my drift, right? Good desires, bad desires. But, you know, sometimes our life feels like a battleground, doesn't it? And you got these two forces at work, and it's wearying to you sometimes. You know, as I was preparing for this message, I, I came across uh, an article uh, and then some writing about Robert Louis Stevenson, who you see up here. He was a Scotsman, and uh, he wrote several different novels. You might be familiar with Treasure Island, one of them that he wrote. But he wrote another one that is perhaps less familiar in terms of him being the author, but I know you've heard of at least the characters in that, and that is his little novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. How many of you ever heard of Jekyll and Hyde, right? And all of us have kind of a little Jekyll and Hyde in our lives. That's what we're talking about, green monster, whatever you want to call it. Some people say that uh, Stevenson, who was very religious in his upbringing, was actually influenced by Paul's own Jekyll and Hyde, which he writes about, Romans chapter 7. 
And that that kind of informed this story that he wrote. And that's what we're going to be looking at the next couple of weekends is what Paul has to say about himself. His own kind of spiritual autobiography where he tells us what his life used to be like before he met Jesus. And even a little bit of his struggle after he met Jesus. So in that sense we can really relate to him. So turn open to Romans chapter 7. And as you do that, I want to break Romans 7 in half. And I want to kind of give some titles to each half. And I brought all these from Tim Keller, who I think just does a brilliant job in dividing up the passage. And the verses we're going to look at first, he describes this way. He says, they describe the battle that we cannot win. That is, there's this battle in us that tries we may, we cannot win. And Paul even admits that he couldn't win the battle in his own personal life. So we're going to start reading at verse 7. Here's how it goes. Paul says, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So what Paul's saying here is that the law of God, the truth of God, the word of God is, is good. It is true. But he says sin has a way of taking what is good and what is true and using it to cause us to break the law, to cause us to question God's goodness and to not trust God himself, that our desires are what leads us astray. And Paul's writing the past tense in these verses, so he's talking about what it used to be like in his life. And he says, you know, I love the law. The law is great, but as much as I love it, as good as it is, I, I, just, can't, I just can't seem to keep it all together. There are certain aspects in my life that that are out of control, that I wish I could govern, but I can't. And that's what you and I as believers oftentimes face in our lives. There's some things that aren't a problem for us. God says, no, we're fine with it. Or God says, yes, we're good with it. But then there are other things that, that, we, that we struggle with. And what is good ends up actually informing the evil that's in our life. You might be wondering to yourself, well, well how, can that, how can that possibly be? And to answer that question, let's go back to verse 8. Paul says, but sin used this command to arouse, and some versions say to create an opportunity. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. He's talking about himself. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. Woodrow Knoll, who's a scholar, says to us that this word that I circled, arouse or opportunity, actually is a military term. It was used to describe the point from which an enemy launches their attack. 
the point from which the enemy launches their attack. And the point from which Satan oftentimes launches his attack is the truth. It's the truth of God. So let me show you what I mean by that. And uh, to do that, we'll do a little bit of, of drawing here. And if you want to draw with Dale, we haven't done that for a while. You're going to get a lot of opportunities to do that in this series. But let's imagine the, the garden. Let's start with the garden, first of all. And, and uh, let me get the right color up here. All right. So let's imagine the garden. And you can plant some trees in your garden, okay? They'll probably look better than my trees, but that's the way it goes. All right? So don't watch me. Draw with me, okay? All right? I know our students are drawing with me. All right? And, and let's put some fruit on our trees, all right? So there are fruit on these different trees that God put in the garden. If you don't like my trees, that's the way it goes. All right? And uh, God said you can eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. He said that to Adam and Eve. Except for one of the trees. This is my tree. And that fruit belongs to me. This is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, what God was saying to them, we've talked about this before, recently in fact. He's saying, I want you to trust me. I can handle the knowledge of good and evil and be eternally good. You can't. So don't eat it. Obey me. My law is good for you. And so God laid the law down, so to speak. Leave that tree alone. And I think from what I can tell in Genesis, everything was going really well in the garden. Adam and Eve would just eat the fruit from all the other different trees that God had put in the garden. They probably passed this tree by every day and didn't even really pay attention to it. Yep, there's that tree we're not supposed to eat from. But look at all the beautiful trees we do get to eat from. Let's go grab some. Then one day, we all know who showed up in the garden. What showed up in the garden? The serpent, right? Satan shows up in the garden. And Adam and Eve happened to be by that tree. And uh, the serpent speaks to them. And the serpent says, is it true you can't eat from any of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And, of course, Eve says, what do you mean? We can eat the fruit from the trees of the garden. Except for this tree, God says we can't eat that tree. Because if we do, we're going to die. Of course, she added we can't even touch it. And that's when the serpent said to her, and we talked about this almost in a humorous way, really? You really believe that? You really believe that God is going to kill you, you're his creation, if you do that? You honestly believe that? Ha, ha, ha. Of course not. God knows that in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will be just like God himself. So what does the enemy do? The enemy highlights this tree among all the other trees, right? And he essence says to them, you know, this is proof that you can't trust God. This is proof that God is not in this essence good. Because if God was good, he wouldn't deny you your desires. And that takes us back to what Christopher Yuan was talking about last weekend. The danger, in that case sexually, but we could take it in any other way, the danger of making our identity our sexuality or our identity our power or our ability or our wealth or whatever it is. The danger of letting our desires drive our identity rather than God. So he gets them to question God's goodness. He gets them to, to check God's uh, trustworthiness. And he says, you can be your own God. And every temptation... I don't care how young or how old you are. Every temptation that you and I will ever face in our life, behind that temptation is a question of God's goodness and a questioning of whether God can be trusted or not. 
So next time you're facing a temptation, ask yourself, what aspect, what attribute of God am I now questioning? Or what attribute of God is the enemy trying to get me to question? That I believe that fulfilling this desire would make me a happier person, would fulfill my life. So isn't it interesting how the enemy comes along and does that? Now, just so we understand a little bit better about this, let's uh, take a look at what it says over here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Now, that tree had always looked good. That fruit had always been delicious, just like all the other trees looked good and their fruit was delicious. What happens, though, that all of a sudden it looks especially good and especially delicious? It's not rocket science. It's the fact that the enemy reminds them they can't have it. Now, I want honesty here, okay? A little psychological honesty. How many of you have ever been walking along a familiar pathway and a bench or a rail or a wall has been freshly painted and the sign says, do not touch, and something in you wants to touch it, besides me. All right? Isn't that weird? Why is that? It's like, I just want to see, is it really still wet or not? Somebody was telling me last night, and they said I could share this, because it happened quite a while ago, several years ago, uh, when they were redoing the towers at MSP at the airport, there was a switch in the remodeling left on the wall with a sign that said, do not touch this switch. It controls the radar motors, you know, where they have the radar turns around, they have contact with the planes. Well, somebody walked by and they saw that and they thought to themselves, there's no way that this switch controls all that. And guess what they did? They went click, click. And all of a sudden, radar contact was lost with all these planes. Talk about a dangerous click, right? A dangerous switch. What is it about us? See, that's how Satan works. I want you to remember that. His, his, his point of attack, where he loves to launch his attack, is always the truth. You don't expect him to stand there. But that's where he's always standing, right by the truth, saying, you really believe that? You, think you, you, mean, you really think you can trust God when he says, you can't fulfill your desires? Remember what we said what Christopher said last weekend, it used to be sola scriptura, scripture only. But do you remember what he reminded us? That we live in a culture now where it is sola experientia. And truth is what I feel. Truth is my experience. And experience is powerful. Emotions are powerful. Are they not? I mean, you feel it. It's visceral, right? And so something you feel and so visceral is very hard to deny. Whereas faith is not as visceral. Do you know when faith becomes visceral? I, God reminded me of this the other day. He's been challenging me on this. Faith becomes visceral when you actually start to act on it. It becomes, it becomes tangible. You can feel it when you actually step into faith and begin to practice it. Whereas feelings invite us to come and then, I'll tell you what, Satan never has your best in mind. He loves to play off your feelings because it feels good. Like you can have an itch and when it itches, you scratch and it feels what? Oh, come on now. It feels what? feels good. But if you scratch too long, too hard, guess what happens? It now hurts. Because you scratch yourself raw, right? You're bleeding now. Now you're in trouble. And that's how Satan loves to work. That's his, that's his thing. Get you to itch until you finally 
scratch yourself to death, so to speak. It's like, you know, they, they say the way they used to sometimes kill wolves is they would take a knife and they would dip it in blood and they'd put it in the ground. And the wolf comes along, or a dog will even do it, will come along and they will lick the, the blood off the blade until they bleed to death. And that's how temptation works. That's how the enemy works. He convinces us that our desires fulfill our lives. We pursue our desires, and our desires are actually the things that kill us and destroy our lives. And that's what Paul's saying in the passage. And, you know, Paul goes on, and he's very open and honest. And he says in verse 9, at one time, I lived without understanding the law. And that doesn't mean he was ignorant because he grew up with the law, so he knew it ever since he was a little kid. What he's saying is, I didn't really take into consideration the depth of what the law means. He says, but when I learned the command not to covet, that is, thou shalt not covet, verse 10, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. I realized that while I could keep all the other commands, the one I could not keep was coveting. I am a coveter, in essence, is what he was saying. Well, what does it mean to covet? Let's talk about that for a minute because it's interesting that Paul brings that out. To covet is to long for, to covet is to want, to covet is to desire. Now it's, not wrong, it's not wrong to want or desire something. Unless we want it and desire it more than God or what we want and desire is evil. I like how Tim Keller defines coveting. He says, coveting is like this. It's the belief that there's something more than God and his love and salvation that one has to have in order to be happy. It's the belief that there's something more than God and his love and salvation that one has to have in order to be happy. If you can't love God enough to be content with what you are and what you have, that's coveting. We'll leave it up for a while because that is a very pregnant phrase or very pregnant sentence, sentences. And so the question for me, is, I'm addressing this to myself as, as well as to you, is there anything else that you believe you have to have that your desires are telling you you have to have in order to be fulfilled and happy? It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. And, Paul, and, you know, and, and Paul's saying, why do you think that that's more important than the love and the grace of God? And if there is something else in your life that you love more than the, God, the grace and goodness of God, that if you didn't have it, your life would be incomplete, then you know that's an issue. It may not be a bad thing in and of itself, but it's become a bad thing to you. It's become an idol because, because you just can't imagine living without it. And so oftentimes we discover what the idols are in our lives when God takes them away. You ever notice that? I can be satisfied with something until it disappears. Then I find out whether or not it's an idol in my life. Now, you know, there are certain things that could disappear in your life. Loved ones. You could lose a loved one and that can grieve your heart. That's not what I'm, what I'm talking about. Unless you grieve so much you don't have room for God. Unless you grieve so much you hate God or turn your back on God. Then it tells you, oh my goodness, I idolized this life. We can idolize relationships. We can idolize wrong relationships. We can idolize sexuality. We can idolize money. We can idolize, and on the list goes, and believe that that person, that thing, that experience, that status in life, that's what's going to make me happy. That's what's going to satisfy my life. Now I know I'm into idolatry. Now I know my identity is in my desires. My identity is not in God. 
Sometimes I feel like a broken record, by the way, even to my own self, saying stuff like this over and over and over and over and over again. But I have to because the culture is yelling at us 24 hours a day, sending us the opposite message, telling us that we'll only be happy when our desires are fulfilled. Well, as those desires are in conflict with God, we're in trouble. So Paul moves on now, and he, and he talks about a different battle, because he goes from past tense to present tense. He talks about a battle we cannot lose. So the point is, there's still a battle, he says. He says, I want, you to know, I want you to know about a battle that you cannot lose. And he does it in the most circular way. This is where a lot of people just look at this passage and go, what on earth was he doing when he wrote this? Listen to what he says, beginning at verse 14. Present tense, I believe he's referring to the life of a Christian, his life. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. I can relate to that. How about you? For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. What on earth? Huh? I wonder if the Holy Spirit's going like, Paul, what are you doing? That's not what I said. It's like Paul's having an argument with himself. And though it sounds kind of confusing, isn't that what happens in our own minds and our own hearts? Man, I want to do this, but I don't do it. I, I do the things I don't want to do instead of the things that I want to do. And I'm a follower of Christ, and this battle's still going on. He goes on, he says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, Inevitably, I do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death, even as a believer? Who's going to free me? And I love what he says. Thank God the answer is in who? The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's why it's the battle you cannot lose. Because Christ is in it. But that doesn't mean because Jesus is in it that the battle is over. He says, so you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So the question becomes, how does Jesus win the battle for me? And how can I, how can I get free to this battle? How can it become less and less instead of continue in my life as a, as a follower? Well, now we've got to go to the front of Romans chapter 7, where he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. He's using as an example. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. Oh, did you know that? You and I have died with Christ. You say, but I'm, I'm still alive. Yes, you're alive with Christ. 
He says, and now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law. For we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Now, rather than me just try to explain it, let's just draw it out. It'll make a whole lot more sense, at least it does for me personally. All right? So, draw yourself to begin with, all right? Be kind to yourself. Draw a picture of yourself, all right? You and I are born sinners. It's in our nature. And as Christopher said, then we act on it. We are born between two tensions. One is the law. One is God's word, his truth. The do's and the don'ts of the scriptures. And by the way, the don'ts aren't there to make our life miserable. They're there actually to bring hope to our lives. And the do's are there to bless our lives. But the other tension that we all face is called temptation which is the opposite of God's do's and don'ts. Temptation says do the opposite of those things. And we live where there is an environment, everything around us, all right, and an environment driven by the God of this world, Satan, an environment that uses the media, an environment that uses the peers, an environment that teases our own sinful nature, an environment that's demonic in essence, and it is constantly sending out these sound waves to us that tell us Listen to your desires. Fulfill your desires. Do what you want to do. God cannot be trusted up here. God doesn't have your ultimate good in mind. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell you that you can't fulfill your desires. So go for it. And because we're born with a sinful nature, our propensity is what? Our propensity is to give in to those. Every day we struggle with that battle. And that condemns us because we've broken the law. There's no hope for us. But Paul says, look what happened. He says, God has done something quite remarkable. God actually comes to us. He sends his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, what's interesting is he also lives between the tension of the law, the word of God, and temptations. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. In the garden, the environment Jesus came into sent out these same shockwaves, so to speak, saying, give in. Remember Matthew 4, the temptation of the wilderness? Turn the stones into bread. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Bow down to me and, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. You can't trust your father. He doesn't have your best in mind. He's going to let you die. Why do you want to listen to him? And Jesus did not cave in. He's the second Adam. He did what Adam, the first Adam should have done. He didn't listen to the enemy. Instead, he listened and kept the word of God. And as a result of that, what did sinful humanity do to him? What did the enemy do to him? Well, the Bible tells us that they crucified him. Jesus was crucified on a tree for you and for me. And so there's this sense that when Christ was crucified, guess what? Paul says, we were crucified with him. Look what it says over here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by what? That's so important. Trusting in the Son of God. Putting my faith in the Son of God and not my desires. And by the way, he says, who loved me, God loved me and gave himself for me. So we go back to our drawing now. And we understand what Paul is saying. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ arose, and because Christ arose, he lives now in me. So what this looks like then, is we go back to our previous diagram over here in this life, it's not just me who's living here, right? But it's Christ who's living in me. And so I have a choice in my life, and you have a choice in your life. I can either continue to try to battle my flesh with my flesh and lose every time, even as a Christian, though I'm saved, because I've been justified by God's grace. Or I can face my flesh, I can face the temptations of this world by resigning to the presence of the Holy Spirit and letting the Holy Spirit control my life. Letting Him lead my life. There will still be a conflict. The flesh wars against the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.17. But the Spirit, if I'll let Him, will give me victory. And that's what we're going to talk about next weekend. How to live the victorious Christian life even over our desires. See, every one of us has a choice to make. I can give in to my desires. I can make them my identity and let them destroy my life. Or I can choose by faith to honor God and to live out my identity in Christ, which nothing can ever take away. You know, this week, and it's been so much in the news, and it is tragic, the death of the great basketball player Kobe Bryant and his daughter and the others in the helicopter accident. And by the way, um, through some context I have, people I know who knew people who knew him well, my understanding is that he had come to faith a while back in Christ and was walking with God and was, was growing in Christ, was a very generous and good man. So it's, it's tragic to see the death of anybody, but people die every single day, tragically, who you and I will never know. So I'm not here to take away about the significance of, of his life and his skill and his talent and his goodness. But I've had people ask me, you know, why is it so many people are talking about this? And, and why is it so many people almost seem to worship the man? And I think there's a couple reasons why. I think, on the one hand, I think it's because when somebody like that dies, somebody that high profile dies, it reminds us all of our mortality. Like all of a sudden, we all realize, I'm going to die too. If he can die, I can die. And the second thing is this. I think some of us assume people have certain identities. We assign identities to them based on their success, based on their celebrity status. And in our minds, psychologically, we think that somebody like that shouldn't die. That their identity, their fame, their goodness, whatever it is, even if it's a preacher, right, that we love and revere, 
and is taken be, you know, before their time, so to speak. In our minds, we go, but somebody like that shouldn't die. When that happens to us, what are we in essence doing? We are wrongfully placing their identity in their success, in their wealth, in their power, in their abilities, which if we do that, the, the bad news is, I don't care who or what your identity is in, you're all, we're all going to die because of sin. But when your identity is in Christ, guess what? It doesn't matter what death does. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My identity in Christ transcends death, transcends time, and promises me hope. So why would I be living by my desires when I can live by faith in Christ? Amen. All right. Good. Let's all stand and let us pray. I saw an article yesterday, is it wrong to pray for your team to win? <laughs> Doesn't matter to us, does it? Let's pray. God, as we go from this place, pray that you would keep us. Thank you that we are on the winning team. His name is Jesus. Thank you that our identity is rooted not in our achievements, not in our desires, good or bad, but it's in Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, draw us near to you. And next weekend, give us... Help us to discover the very practical ways to learn to live that identity out in victory over sin and temptation, which we desperately need your help in. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. If you want prayer, pastors will be here and prayer partners.